stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Yeah, good afternoon. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Monday afternoon as we uh, kick off the month of November. we got a lot still to get to over the course of this hour. Later on, we'll look at the uh, status of the Canadian flag, specifically the Canadian flag that is and has been flying at half-mast across the country uh, for a number of months now with, with no apparent end in sight. Now, Remembrance Day is, is in 10 days, and typically the Canadian flag is lowered on Remembrance Day. Uh, the flag cannot be lowered if it is already lowered. So how do we resolve this? We'll explore that coming up after 2.30. And we get some other issues to get to your phone calls as well. But off the top in this hour, I want to talk about China, which I think for Canada remains a, a real challenge on the foreign policy front. And we've seen some instances where uh, this government has been uh, afraid to act, unwilling to act, unsure of how to act when it comes to matters pertaining to China. Now, we've obviously had one major issue hanging over that relationship that appears to be resolved, uh, the situation with Meng Wanzhou and uh, the two Michaels. Uh, But it certainly speaks to China's rise in prominence and how they've sought to achieve that. There's a new book that explores the rise of China, what it means to the international order and how China's trying to not just join that order, but shape it in its own way. And obviously, the last decade for sure, the last couple of decades, have been quite significant in terms of China's rise as a global power and a global economic power. Uh, so this is all explored in a new book. It's called China Unbound, A New World Disorder. Joining us uh, to talk more about the book is its author, uh, Joanna Chu, is a senior journalist uh, with the Toronto Star. And as mentioned, uh, author of the book, China Unbound. Joanna, so great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Oh, hi. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's interesting how this turned into this project because, I mean, you've been mm-hmm. covering a lot of these issues for some time. I think the the situation with the two Michaels sort of marked a, a turning point in, mm-hmm. in your investigative work. Talk about kind of the origin, the genesis of this project. Mm-hmm. So I was actually based in China for seven years before 2018. And when I returned home to Vancouver, I felt that the China story might, you know, have been in my path to leave two journalists on the ground there to tell. But obviously, in Vancouver, as you know, in December, um, Meng Wanzhou was arrested. um, And, you know, less than two weeks later, two Michaels were taken as it became very clear um, Beijing's hostages because they were so unhappy with Meng's detention by Canada at the request of U.S. authorities. And even though I pointed out in my reporting that hostage-taking diplomacy is not a new thing, new tactic from Beijing, in the past, many of its targets were people of Asian descent. Um, for some reason, perhaps related to just the prominence of Huawei and how brazen these particular cases were, I think it woke up a lot of people, not just in Canada, but all around the world, that perhaps it's naivete and assumption that, you know, um, that China was going in a more liberal direction and that even if right. there are serious human rights abuses, that it wouldn't affect people around the world. I think that came crashing down. And there was a lot of global interest um, in China's political system after that. So, you know, I started working on this book to try to answer a lot of people's questions to give them a lot of that context and uh, providing that kind of journalistic eyewitness reporting, uh, relaying my reporting in China on, you know, the politicians and uh, dynamics there and also traveling all around the world in 2019 to Western countries to really analyze and examine 
how um, we've reached this point where not just Canada, but many countries' relations with China have become quite tense mm-hmm. uh, and quite problematic with not many, you know, clear solutions in sight. Yeah, and you touched on an important point because it wasn't supposed to be like this, that the potential of China as an economic power was was known and, and obvious. Uh, mm-hmm. But the thinking was that as China developed economically, they would evolve politically, that mm-hmm. in joining the new, you know, in joining the, the global order, uh, that, that there would be a liberalization mm-hmm. that doesn't seem to have occurred. No, like a lot of this conversation came around um, 2001 when um, there was debate and discussion around China joining the World Trade Organization. And people, leaders like Bill Clinton, um, really, you know, promoted this view that, you know, it was a good idea uh, as China was more integrated into the world economy. You know, from sheer, like, exposure to Western democracies, it was going to become more like us, more like the West. Um, and it had also this view that, you know, democracies were so flawless that just from sheer contact that China was going to change. But Chinese leaders never made this promise. Right. Um, so this idea that, you know, a lot of people feel betrayed now um, is actually, you know, not actually a promise broken, at least from the Chinese side. Um, I try to provide information about how um, this push towards more market reforms and liberalization of the economy in China was always, you know, um, done in a way that they did not want to allow changes to their political system and their one-party state system and their, um, you know, lack of press freedom and freedom of speech there. In, in fact, it just uh, under the current President Xi Jinping um, taking power in late 2012, it, the crackdowns in civil society have actually increased. And um, it, including like uh, Chinese businesses, a lot of people who are entrepreneurs in China have told me over the years how frustrated they are, the increasing rules and restrictions on, you know, how can they do their business, how they can operate on the internet, like what news they can include on a website. Um, it's not just frustrating to foreigners and foreigners in business in China and people who are concerned about human rights. It's, it's a tough time for all sorts of Chinese citizens as well. By the way, and, and if indeed, you know, that growing economic strength has, has strengthened the political power of the regime, mm-hmm. what do we make of some of the, the warning signs we've seen recently that suggest that maybe the economy in China mm-hmm. is on, on shaky ground? What are the implications mm-hmm. of that? Yeah, I think people, um, especially like I, they're reporting in Europe and Italy and Greece, and still um, people have a very simplified and exaggerated view of China's power, economic power, as if it's just this huge market of 1.4 billion people all you need to do is you enter that market sell your product and you'll be rich overnight um, not taking account the complexities of the legal system there um, how to operate there um, and and people also don't know that perhaps um, because of China's economic uh, weaknesses its leaders are more um, paranoid and concerned about stability and control politically. Um, China has a huge rising middle class and people who are increasingly connected to the world and are frustrated by some of the restrictions on, you know, just governing every aspect of life to how many kids you can have to where you can live. Um, and that kind of social contract I try to explain in the book where um, in exchange for facilitating economic prosperity, the Chinese people will... Um, not complain about, you know, lack of civil rights and freedoms. It's kind of shaky right now. There are actually 
um, more and more labor protests and disputes, like factory workers in China losing their jobs to automation, to actually countries in India and Southeast Asia where it is cheaper to manufacture goods right now. People find that surprising. China is no longer the most you know low cost place to produce things anymore. They're trying to transition to a more um, advanced, uh, developed. A consumer-driven economy, and that's really, really tough for a country of its size trying to move in that direction. So it's definitely facing a lot of internal pressures. And as that ramps up, it seems clear that you know on the political side, there's more and more crackdowns. Um, Xi Jinping is worried that allowing any type of um, flowering of opposition or different views will somehow lead to the collapse of you know Chinese Communist Party rule. Well, and, and the crackdown, and, and it's interesting, too, because in some ways that, that expands well past China's borders. And, and it's mm-hmm. something you've, you've covered and written about is, is the situation facing uh, expat communities, international students, mm-hmm. as an example, uh, even, even right here in Canada, that, mm-hmm. that, that they are subject to that in, in many respects as well. Yeah, so, you know, people are frustrated because they were warning about this for decades mm-hmm. um, because it started with pressure on the Chinese diaspora. Like people of my parents' generation um, working in media in Canada, um, getting pressure from Chinese embassy officials, um, getting pressure from uh, Chinese officials who were trying to put after advertisers to drop advertising in Chinese Canadian media outlets that were more critical of Beijing. Uh, this has happened in Canada and all over the world. Um, but it hasn't risen to the level of public attention until, again, like after the two Michaels, like people are talking about this, but it's been longstanding. Um, and I've done reporting for the Toronto Star about how Chinese officials actually have knocked on the door of Canadians, telling them, um, monitoring their social media, obviously, saying, wow. you've been posting in support of democracy in Hong Kong, you should stop. Um, and using as leverage if they have family or friends or businesses in China to use that as leverage. And that can be really effective. A lot of people are scared. Canadians are scared because they've received these visits and phone calls um, to silence them. And they tell me that they've gone to police and police say there's nothing in the books um, that can really allow the police to investigate. Um, they don't have the resources. Uh, police told me, you know, on background, that part of the problem is that they don't have Chinese language translation resources in um, their police department, mm-hmm. which is surprising because, you know, Canada has so many people of Chinese heritage, you would think we would have some of this training. But, you know, talking to politicians across the country, they get surprised when they speak with Chinese state media and Chinese state media twist their words um, into, you know, propaganda. Um, to say that Canadian politicians support them. There's a very low level of awareness of even which media outlets in China are controlled by the state. Um, There's no mandatory briefings for politicians in um, different levels. There's this idea, I think that's really outdated, that anything to do with security or foreign influence is very top level in Canada. And here, like BC or Calgary, Alberta, don't need to worry about it because it's not happening here. Um, but it, it is really clear that um, I try to explain that Beijing's United Front Work Department is well-resourced. It might have thousands of employees, and it's part of their philosophy to gain influence around the world, to to put their energies into what we would think of as ordinary people. 
Mm-hmm. Um, they really want to win the hearts and minds of politicians around the world, uh, people of Chinese diaspora around the world. Um, and if those soft tactics of things like flattery and offering paid trips to our politicians doesn't work, um, often that would turn into those threats and intimidation. And we've seen that manifest in more extreme ways as of late when we see the hostage taking of not only Canadians, but Australians. Several Australian uh, citizens are in detention right now um, in China. Um, just because a two Michaels return doesn't mean that China has released all of its foreign uh, political hostages. I'm curious to what extent the pandemic or even the perception of China's handling of the pandemic has affected its its mm-hmm. its global standing, has affected mm-hmm. uh, you know affected its global ambitions. Hmm. Um, that's an interesting question because with COVID, I think there was like an outburst and a lot of scapegoating, blame, racism against not just the Chinese government but people of Chinese descent. Right. You know, for bringing COVID to Canada when. Now we know that, you know, COVID entered Canada mostly through the American border. Um, In fact, a lot of our uh, citizens of Chinese descent were warning uh, Canadians to try to take this virus seriously because, you know, they had lived through SARS in Hong Kong um, and they were wearing masks in January and trying to tell people that it's a good idea. But um, people, including myself, (laughs) wearing a mask early on uh, where we were being made fun of. Um, but instead, there was all of these racist attacks and scapegoating. And this makes it really difficult to actually criticize Beijing effectively because, you know, they admit there was a period of about five days where there was a cover-up uh, from Wuhan officials about what was happening. Yeah. And, you know, that deserves scrutiny. It deserves, you know, countries putting pressure on China to provide more information. Um, but when it's accompanied by all of these hate crimes all around the world against Anyone who looks vaguely East Asian, uh, including people who are actually indigenous in Canada, you know, getting punched in the face saying you brought COVID here, that makes it really difficult um, for politicians who I think have the political will to advance these conversations and to look into what actually happened, not just with the origins of COVID um, and the, you know, the problems with China not being communicative for several days, but also foreign influence, like. Uh, people, foreigners getting intimidated all over the world. It's hard to talk about these things when when you bring it up, um, people take it to the extreme where they just want those really simplified narratives and then it becomes very hate-filled and I think um, I think fear drives people to really want a simple answer and when in fact what's actually happening is really complicated. <laughs> people of yeah. Chinese descent have very diverse opinions, let alone people who live in China. Absolutely. Well, we got to leave it there. Uh, the book is called China Unbound, A New World Disorder. Joanna Chu, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate yeah, this. Thank you for selecting the book. Uh, if I can answer any questions, um, your listeners can re- reach me uh, online. Sounds good, Joanna. Thanks again. Uh, Joanna Chu, veteran journalist, uh, the book China Unbound, A New World Disorder, looking at China's uh, rise to prominence and uh, what it means uh, for the rest of the world. Uh, we got to take a break here. Much more still to get to on this Monday afternoon. My name is Rob Breckenridge. We're back after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.